So the church calendar gives us this one time, one day, where we can set aside Jesus as this orienting North Star. Now, when the Bible talks about a name, it doesn't just mean like Todd or Bob or Sally. It means to talk about the person's nature or character. So if just for an exercise, let's picture there's a big whiteboard up here this morning, and I wrote the simple word, G-O-D. And I asked you, I just want you to place that simple word before your mind this morning. How do you pour any sort of meaning in that word? One of my favorite theologians says that one of the great mistakes of theology of all kinds, but including Christian theology, is that we tend to go to that word assuming we know at least a few things about it. And we hardly ever let the word speak to us. And even if we did, we wouldn't quite know how to do that, except for that this feast day reminds us that the best way we pour meaning into that simple word, G-O-D, is Jesus. And we'll talk a bit more about that. So we just think about that. What does that name mean? And it's important because our thoughts about God organize our manner of living. They give us a vision for the good life. They impart kind of our fundamental values. And there's a lot of competition over what that simple word, G-O-D, means. In fact, if you were to measure it just by numbers of, of adherents, the five largest religions who all offer competing versions of God and all ask for complete allegiance to the meaning that they pour in to that simple word, God. So the fifth largest religion in the world is Buddhism. Buddhism suggests when they look into that word that there is no creator deity, but that there are enlightened beings of higher realms. And classic Buddhists would suggest that it's actually unhealthy spiritually to speculate about or try to believe in God. Well, the fourth largest religion in the world, uh, numbered by uh, adherents, is Hinduism. Hindus typically believe in a supreme being, a spirit creator, a Brahman, but this Brahman is impersonable and unknowable. And he exists, scholars think, in as many as 330 million entities in Hinduism. And Hinduism isn't very coherent. I mean, some Hindus are monistic, meaning they would say that there's only one thing. So nothing's discrete. There's no difference between me and this podium and this podium and my uh, phone and me and Dennis. Monism just means everything is one and there's only one thing in the universe. But sometimes Hindus are pantheistic and that is to say that God is identical with his world. Other Hindus are panentheistic, which just means the world is a part of God. So here's God and the world is a part of him. Sometimes though, they, are, can, be, they can actually be theistic but they would say that God is utterly distinct from his creation. Well, the world's third largest religion are secularists. The people who are non-religious, they're agnostic, they're atheists, they say they have no preference, but again, sometimes they can be theistic. And I can't remember if I told you this story, but it's worth telling again, because I'll never forget it as long as I live. I teach a course here on evangelism, and every semester we have what we call a live outsider's interview. You're all welcome to come anytime you want. 
And we take four atheists and we put them on the stage. And this room is packed out with student body. And I interview these atheists. So the last time we did it, there was this really lovely girl, I think about 19 years old, maybe 20. Uh, she's a student at, US, at UCI studying like microbiology or something. Um, you know, brilliant young lady. I want you to picture this, brilliant, like top of her class student, brilliant young lady. Very serious about what she's doing. And she sat here on this stage and said, God is whatever you make him to be. And as long as you're really serious and sincere about it, you actually create God in your mind, and my God is Santa Claus. She was not kidding. She was absolutely dead serious. Because I can just pick the one I want, and I like Santa Claus because I like the idea of God giving me good things. She was not kidding. She was not being sarcastic. She was being absolutely real in front of, you know, hundreds of students and others. Well, this is the third biggest religion now in the world. This sort of, I'm not sure, make it up as you go. Well, the world's second largest religion is Islam. And of course, Islam tries to understand God or Allah through the Quran. And Muhammad is sort of the chief explainer or the last prophet of God. So the way Muslims typically understand themselves is this, that Islam is the complete and universal version of what God was doing in Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. And so Muslim is, uh, or Islam is sometimes best understood as sort of a second century reform movement. They thought they were correcting the corrupted versions of Jesus and Jesus' gospel. So they see Jesus as a prophet sent by Allah, but not divine, and that salvation is achieved through good works, Thus, personal righteousness must outweigh personal sin. Now, those of you who lived through the 60s are thinking, I have no hope. Um, <clears throat> right? Are you with me here? Like, I did too much acid to ever think that my personal righteousness could ever, you know, outweigh my personal sin. Well, then the number one world, uh, world's religion is Christianity. Not number one, uh, and I'm not talking here about best, I'm talking about number of adherents. And of course, Christianity pours meaning into that word God by saying that God exists in a trinity, that God is good and faithful and holy and loving. And we, of course, derive, as I said, meaning for that word God through Jesus, who the Bible says is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who the Bible says was sent by God to be the Savior of the world, who Acts tells us no other name by which mankind can be saved has been given. He's called the author of salvation, that all things were made by him and are held together by him, Paul said to the Colossians. John said Jesus is the word of God made flesh, and in him is life, and he's the light of the world. And of course, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And here's the key words, the exact representation of his being. So when Christians stop, and they look at that word, God, they think Jesus. Trusting that these ancient Jews understood what they were saying. That, oh, this is what Yahweh looks like in the flesh. Oh, 
This is what Jehovah looks like in the flesh. Oh, this is this God that has been sort of mysterious and distant to us and cloud and, and fire and speaking from a bush and those sorts of things. This is what God is like when we can actually see him among us. So through our readings this morning, let's see if we can feast a bit on the holy name of Jesus under these three simple simple thoughts. What is Jesus to us? What has he done for us? And thirdly, what is he doing for us? So first, who is Jesus? Well, of course, the scripture reveals him as Savior and as Lord. That is to say, a king who has a kingdom, which is to say he's a master who has apprentices. And these apprentices are trying to fit their life not for merit's sake, not to earn anything, not because we think our righteousness has to somehow add up to be more than our sin, not for any of those kinds of reasons. That's why we started by saying Jesus is Savior. But not just Savior, he's this king who has a kingdom. He's a master with apprentices who are trying to train themselves to fit themselves in this story. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I look up at your macro skies, dark and enormous, your handmade sky jewelry, the moon and the stars mounted in their settings. And then I look at my micro self and I wonder, why do you bother with us? I look up that you surpass even everything you created and scientists keep telling us that these universes just go on and on and on. There's this incredible sky jewelry out there which is just sort of maybe to you what my little finger is to me. And I look and I see that you pay attention to us and I wonder, why do you even take a second look our way? Yet, we've so narrowly missed being gods, bright with Eden's dawn light. You put us in charge of your handcrafted world and repeated to us your Genesis charge. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so we look at that story And not just from creation today, but if you look at the end of the story, Revelation 22.5 speaks of your destiny and of my destiny. Here's your destiny. And they will rule and reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we're apprentices of Jesus, actually not with reference to salvation as we typically think of salvation of heaven or hell. We apprentice ourselves to Jesus out of respect for the fact that God called us to be his cooperative friends, seeking to live constant lives of creative goodness through the power of the Holy Spirit and for the sake of others, that we're trying to fit ourselves in this Genesis charge that goes all the way to our charge in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, what has Jesus done for us? Well, of course, he's revealed God to us. He's revealed God's nature. He announced and demonstrated and embodied the kingdom of God. He, of course, died for our sins and rose again as the first fruits of all those who will have eternal life. And our reading in Galatians this morning tells us about this. God sent his son to redeem those under the law, to give us adoption so that we would no longer be slaves for thee, All the follies of sin I resign, we just sang. You won't do it unless you have a reason to. Because sin's fun, let's face it. It makes us feel alive. 
Great for a season, the Bible says. But sin is pleasurable for a season. It has hooks in us. And the only way we step out of that is to step into this bigger picture that says we've been adopted as sons, these people who, Lord, our Lord, you really are paying attention to us. You really do have meaning for our lives. You really are setting us to no longer be a slave to our sin. But Galatians 4, you're making us your child and heir, set free to experience our rightful heritage. You're making us a child with complete access to our inheritance. This is the language of regeneration. You're remaking us. And we really, I wanna say, this is for free, this is a little parenthetical thought for free. I wanna say that we've kinda lost regeneration in our Christian vocabulary these days. We tend to only think of penalty and the taking away of penalty. So we sinned, there's penalties owed, Jesus shed his blood, he paid the penalty, we're all good. That's true. But the New Testament is full of regeneration idea that says we're made different people. This is what the whole born again language means. And this is what Paul's getting at. That what Jesus has done for us is that he has given us his kind of life. Well, thirdly, what is Jesus doing for us? And through the Holy Spirit, he's filling us, animating us, energizing us, guiding us, and blessing us. Now, what does it mean to bless? Especially in the Old Testament, that's a bit of a technical word because it comes out of the, the uh, kind of uh, formal religion of our ancient forefathers. And so to bless means to publicly declare someone's favored status with God. To bless somebody means to empower them, to endue them with power for spiritual prosperity and success. It means to guide them, to give motivation, to pursue a course of life within that blessing. So God says, tell Aaron, here's how I want you to bless the Israelites, my people. Say to them, the Lord bless you. The Lord grant you spiritual prosperity and success. The Lord keep you. That is to say, guard and protect and watch over you, hold you for himself. The Lord turn his face towards you and shine on you. Think of a movie where you saw lovers having a spat and one turns away. Talk to the hand. And the blessing says, no, the Lord turn his face towards you and his countenance shine upon you, that you would know how very much he loves you and accepts you right where you are and says, I wanna have a relationship with you. Child, you're my heir. You're an heir of this amazing Psalm 8 story that has its never ending in Revelation 22.5. You're my child in that. The Lord turn his face towards you and invite you into that kind of life. The Lord be gracious unto you. Meaning, may you sense the Lord's goodness and favor and mercy as you enter into this new life. And the Lord give you peace. May you be at rest and centered in Christ Jesus, who is our Lord. So, God says, that's the name I will put on the Israelites and I will bless them. And the meaning of this is you then become name bearers. I become name bearers. Remember, name means what? Character, essence, nature. So this means put on my people my character, my essence, my nature. 
Well, as I was thinking about this this week, I realized in conclusion that I, I just feel like I have to say one thing. I am aware that we live in a time where everything that I've just said is being chastised. And there's kind of a political correctness growing up that says, you can't just rank the world's religions and say that Christianity is best. What's wrong with you? That's as politically incorrect as you could possibly get. You can't even contend that anymore. To do so is impolite at best, and at worst, some sort of power play. You know, you're just using language to have power over others. You cannot do this. And I just want you to know that I, I've never, I mean, I'm always real with you, but I've never been more real than I'm gonna be in the next few minutes with you. This just comes from the deepest parts of my heart. I get that Christianity in our lifetime has moved from a privileged position in society to a marginalization, to sometimes even mockery and hatred. And some of this I think we need to bear with patient love. Some of it's obviously unfair. Some forms of political correctness are obviously just silly. But I think I get, why, while most of us, even in this room, and most of the millions and millions of Christians in America are now sort of rethinking the recent past. I know the ugly things I've said about homosexuals in my lifetime. I get the pushback. I know the terrible things the church has said about divorcees. Especially when I was young, like when I was in elementary school, junior high, to be divorced if you were a Christian was a really big deal. Well, now half our population is divorced. And when they think we hate them or that they're somehow losers, I get the pushback. I get it. I know the things we've said about adulterers or spiritual wanderers. I get it, I get why we're all trying to find our footing in this new world, but we don't do anyone any favor by being unclear about Jesus or wimping out on him. Whatever the answer is to this difficult time we're living in, giving up on Jesus is not the answer. Or sort of wimping out, or saying, well, we're just willing to sort of find our place within the world's religions. It's intellectually dishonest. They're all competing for ultimate allegiance. None of them are saying, well, we're just one of the five. None of them are saying that. They're all saying we're right. And they're all asking us to agree that they're right. They're all witnessing. And they're all seeking disciples. So we don't do anyone any favor to just say, oh, okay, well, we'll just sort of give up on our distinctives or our, our uniquenesses. Rather, as our reading told us this morning, Mary held the things of Jesus dear. She held them deep within herself. And it's a bit simplistic, I know, but C.S. Lewis wasn't far off when he said, look, if you're gonna be honest about this, Jesus was either a liar. He either knew that he was saying things about himself that just flat weren't true, or he was misguided, some form of insanity, or he was actually right. I mean, come on, Muslims aren't backing off about Muhammad being right. They're asking us to believe that. It's completely fair for us to say, well, we think Jesus. Does anybody in the room like uh, Tyler Perry, you know, Medea? You know those movies? Did you, ever see, did you ever see the Christmas one? It's a play. 
and uh, I can't remember the context now, but uh, Tyler Perry's character just goes off on, and I'm tired of hearing this stuff about the universe. All, you know, he's t- going off on new age stuff. His character, Medea, is going off. And she says, I'm tired of hearing all this new age stuff and all this stuff about the universe. I'll believe, I'll worship the universe when it gets on a cross and dies for me. You know, that universe never got on a cross, and you know, you can just hear Medea going on and on and on about this. But, you know, the point simply was that that kind of stuff is just not intellectually honest, that people hold on to it for wrong reasons. But Jesus, Jesus is concrete specificity. It's not honest to say that Jesus is cool. I mean, if you push Bill Maher far enough, he'll tell you Jesus is cool. But I'll tell you this, Bill Maher has no intention of following Jesus. He has no intention of being a part of the ethical, moral revolution that Jesus brought to this world. It's completely dishonest to say Jesus is cool, but then dismiss the ethical, spiritual movement that he started. But what I want you to know this morning as we sort of turn ourselves now to Epiphany, and to people hearing and seeing a manifestation of God, I want you to know that the possibility still exists that we read in the Gospels this morning. The shepherds spread the word, and all who heard it were amazed. Epiphanies are still possible. People still do wake up to the revelation of God and go, oh my gosh, I've been, gone my whole, I've been wrong my whole life. It happens all the time. So all people have the right to witness about their experience of God, and Christians should have nothing to fear about this. One of my favorite writers, scholars, is Miroslav Volf, who grew up in the former Yugoslavia. He was in a tiny little Pentecostal sect, but he actually grew up during those years of civil war where the Muslims were fighting the Christians. And so he spent a good deal of his intellectual life, scholarly life, thinking and writing about these kinds of tensions. And Wolf says, we must reject both all suppression of freedom of expression and all uncharitable ways of exercising that freedom. So what if we just quit saying you ragheads? The kind of ways we talked when we had privileged position in society and power over everybody else, and those ragheads were a little weird minority. What if we just quit talking like that? and found the kind, generous love of God, and found a way of engaging in conversation with our culture that's rooted in love of neighbor and the golden rule. You don't want to be talked about as a golden cupper. You'd be totally offended. Well, they're rightfully offended when we talk about them as ragheads. But that's not the only option. We've got another option here. And that is honest conversation rooted in love of neighbor and rooted in the golden rule, treating people the way we'd like to be treated. Because the truth of it is, you guys, some agreement, or sorry, agreement on some essentials is just not possible. It's not possible that God is a trinity and 330 million gods. It's not possible. You can't just go, oh, whatever. You wouldn't go, oh, whatever, about whether your tire's flat or not. How can you just go, oh, whatever about God? What kind of meaning you put in that? You can't. And that kind of thing that's happening right now is just wimping out. You have to decide. So clear, even passionate disagreement rooted in love of of neighbor and the golden rule, rather than mean-spirited comparing our best with their worst, has to stop. 
It's not fair to compare a terrorist who straps a backpack full of bombs on his body and Mother Teresa. It's not fair. We can't compare our best with their worst, no matter who we're talking about. It doesn't work. It just injures people. We have to stop that kind of thing that we had when we were the bosses of everything and find a way to engage with people in the spirit of Christ. And so as we turn now to Epiphany in the weeks ahead, we turn to the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. You know, the Gentiles just simply means the others, the outsiders, the least, the last, the lost, the left out. I want to turn in the next few weeks now to helping us as a congregation think through how do we help post-Christian people have an epiphany? How do we get into this dialogue that's happening in America and as loving but honest people help people see the revelation of God? So I'm sorry, that's seven minutes longer than I normally go, but I thought there were some important things to be said. Amen.